Welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at Cato. I'm Trevor Thrall, senior fellow here at Cato. Happy New Year, everybody. Today, we're venturing a little outside of Trevor and I's uh, main areas of expertise, and we're going to talk about a topic that has suddenly become a big part of foreign policy during the Trump administration, and that's trade policy. Most administrations have typically considered free trade to be just a core component of America's role in the world. But Trump's new national security strategy and his statements throughout the campaign instead suggest a new and perhaps even mercantilist approach to the economy uh, and how we deal with it. So joining us to make sense of some of these issues is Nate Olson, director of the Trade 21 program at the Stimson Center. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So, as always, we're going to start with some bits from the news. New year, lots of new news stories to deal with. Um, But we're going to return to sort of a perennial topic on the podcast, and that's Iran. Iran's back in the news. This time, it's not so much about the nuclear deal. It's about the fact that Iranian protesters are on the streets protesting uh, mostly economic grievances against their government. What should we make of this? Um, And in particular, what should we make of the somewhat frenzied response we've seen here in D.C.? I'll take a quick whack. Uh, you know, I'm I'm reminded of uh, uh, a, a line that went around a lot after the Iranian Revolution in 1979 when Americans were trying to figure out what had prompted that. And um, a lot of people speculated that it was economic, um, uh, you know, discontent and so on and so forth. And, and the revolutionaries at the time said, hi, you think we had a revolution over the price of watermelons? What a joke. Uh, and today, when trying to figure out what the main, you know, motivating factor of the unrest is, it looks like it's more about the price of watermelon than it is about um, revolutionary ideology or the nuclear deal or anything like that. Uh, and I think w- what's interesting to me about this is how much trouble the United States has figuring out Iran after all these decades of Iran being a pretty important player to understand. Well, I can certainly second that that latter bit in particular. <clears throat> Uh, I, I would also add, I, I, while, while indeed most of the, the grievances that we've seen manifest in, in the last couple of weeks are rooted in the sort of bread and butter or watermelon kind of issues, I think nonetheless, from at least a U.S. perspective and, and from a foreign policy perspective, it does uh, perhaps leave lessons for how we ought to proceed vis-a-vis the nuclear deal. Um, it, it it helps to illustrate some of the underlying currents in Iran, um, some of the challenges its current leadership faces, and it just goes to show that it's a very tenuous climate there, and um, the the massive investments that the that the that the world really has put into the uh, agreements to the nuclear deal uh, and its maintenance um, is something that shouldn't be taken lightly, and, and hopefully the U.S. will uh, uh, heed that lesson in particular. I think. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, you know, here in D.C., there has been a lot of talk about how this plays into the nuclear deal. And, you know, I've, I've written about this, but at the risk of repeating myself, this really isn't so much about us. And it's not about the nuclear deal. It's mostly about these economic grievances. I think it was actually the price of eggs, not watermelon in, in one of the cities. But but it is. It's, you know, mostly working class Iranians, different protesters that came out in 2009. And while they do talk a little about foreign policy, they're mostly concerned about domestic things. And so, I think policymakers here in D.C. have this habit of really viewing this as, you know, this is something related to us when perhaps it's not. All politics is local. 
Well, with that, let's move on to our second question um, and, and get back to, I guess, politics that is somewhat local here. Down at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, our, our dear leader, Donald Trump, has, apparently has a bigger nuclear button than North Korean leader you Kim Jong-un. Huh? You just had to. Yes, uh, he just had to, and I'm I'm just going to assume there are no euphemisms intended at all in that statement for the sake of keeping this a family-friendly podcast. Um, but let's talk just a little about developments on the Korean Peninsula, because things have moved on quite a lot since we last talked about it. Yeah, I, I mean, and not really in a good way necessarily, although, I mean... North Korea uh, having some sort of mini rapprochement with South Korea seems like good news. Um, you know, North Korean participation in the Olympics is going to be controversial among hawks uh, in America and maybe elsewhere, but seems to me like uh, a step back from uh, nuclear confrontation. Um, but on the other hand, we have just very recent, um, you know, reminders that H.R. McMaster, National Security Advisor, is uh, seems convinced that you know, North Korea must be stopped before doing something like putting a warhead on a specific kind of a missile that maybe they've already done, maybe they haven't, but but really seems convinced that war is necessary to stop this, and that's terrifying. Well, I, I think you're alluding to some of the, the leaks or, or reports from recent days as we record here. I, I, I would join you in that concern um, uh, because... I, 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 I don't see how that really would be a constructive um, uh, step you know, that, uh, without uh, inviting some kind of massive uh, unintended consequences. It's interesting. I've seen others um, uh, follow that speculation or follow those reports, I should say, by uh, speculating that there might not be uh, as much credence as we fear there should be in them uh, since we haven't seen a lot of pushback by uh, the defensive, you know, establishments and, and uh, others throughout the Pentagon, the state, and so on. So, uh, but I, I, I would just uh, join you in hoping for the, for the best. That is unfortunately a depressingly uh, common view in here in D.C. at the moment, I think. Um, but I do think this is an interesting question. You know, is McMaster playing up to his boss by saying, "Oh, Trump's right, being bellicose," but North Korea is he bluffing? and trying to turn Trump's statements into something perhaps to make the Chinese act towards North Korea? Or, or is he serious about this? And I so far have not seen any report that really identifies which of those it is. And if we don't know, the North Koreans certainly don't know. Yeah, for sure not. And I mean, you know, trying to sort of parse that and decide which of those makes either the most sense or would be the smartest thing to do or whatever, it's, it's hard to figure out. Um, you know, which is the worst one of them. I mean, I, none of these things are good to me. I mean, it smells a lot like, um, you know, common sort of imperial myths that Jack Snyder wrote about where we have this incredibly crazy, uh, dangerous regime, uh, but all we need to do to stop them from doing terrible things is, uh, you know, give them a bloody nose. That's the current theory. Oh, bloody nose. We're just going to go in, quick pop them, and that will deter them. Why would that deter someone that you've just described as so terrifying and monstrous and willing to, you know, launch nuclear war? I, why wouldn't nuclear deterrence actually be enough? If they, if a bloody nose can stop them, certainly the threat of nuclear annihilation could, but evidently not. So, I mean, it, that seems unhinged from reality to me. The idea that the bluffing strategy, I, I just don't, I just don't think they're that good at foreign policy yet. So I, I think this is, I think they believe it, and I, I think it's a nightmare. I hear, I, I hear some uh, strong resonance with the 
approach to trade policy, actually, as we're going to uncover here in a few minutes, I think. Yeah, but before we get there, we've got to deal with yet another country that the Trump administration seems to be trying to alienate. Now, admittedly, this one's Pakistan, and I am a lot more sympathetic to the idea that perhaps we shouldn't be providing a lot of military aid to Pakistan, which has been problematic for many years. Um, But there's also going to be consequences to this decision by the Trump administration to cut off aid for U.S. troops in Afghanistan. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, in no particular order, I, I suppose there could be. I really defer to to you two and and actually Beckett Stimson to some of my colleagues who have uh, spoken out and written very thoughtfully just in the immediate aftermath of these recent decisions by the U.S. And one of the one of the real areas of concern uh, is whether this uh, step by the U.S. will undermine uh, cooperation with Pakistan in terms of the maintenance of its nuclear arsenal. Um, that's that's something that we could. Uh, see play out in the in the coming weeks months. Um, it's just it's one of a constellation really of of foreign policy and security uh, concerns that have really have uh, compelled this uneasy uh, uh, you know relationship of convenience over the last uh, couple decades. But um, but we'll see. I'm interested in what you guys think on other fronts. I, you know, I think this is the latest in a long series of, you know, back and forth with Pakistan. It, you know, the United States tries to exert leverage by offering the carrot, threatening the stick. Uh, you know, trade or aid to Pakistan over decades has actually gone through. I just saw a great paper at a conference a few months ago. Uh, over decades has gone up and down in waves as the United States sort of tries one strategy, then another. I think the, the long-term lesson is that none of those waves did anything close to what the U.S. hoped they mm-hmm. would do in terms of exert leverage. And so I think in this case, too, Pakistan's local concerns about India and about uh, its own issues with the Pakistani Taliban, Haqqani Network, and and all that other stuff, I I think those dwarf uh, a tiny bit of a couple billion dollars in aid is nothing compared to those issues. So I I expect this to do little to how Pakistan behaves. But frankly, I mean, the U.S. mission in Afghanistan is such a mess that it doesn't, it's not going to matter much for that either. It's going to be more expensive to support it, is basically the bottom line. As long as we have troops there, now we're going to have to fly planes into Central Asia to resupply them if Pakistan cuts off those supply lines. But you're right. I mean, this this should be part of a broader discussion, I think, not just let's shut off the aid to Pakistan. It should be part of a broader discussion about U.S. Central Asia policy and what we really need to be doing in that region. But uh, I think we should probably move on because we've uh, talked a lot about the Trump administration and just quickly talk about our new surprise questions. So again, new year, new questions. Um, and we're going to ask you, Nate, to tell us what you think the Trump administration's worst foreign policy decision has been and, and then also what you think their best foreign policy decision has been. And I understand that one of those might be a little easier than the other to answer. Oh, my. Uh, I'll start by... Uh Trying to to identify the worst foreign policy decision, and I'll go I'll go big. I'll go a little bit macro and say uh, the the decision, you know, the either proactive decision or at least um, uh, tacit approval for the uh, gutting of the the U.S. Uh, uh, foreign service um, and foreign policy establishment, kind of just writ large. Um, that's something that uh, is going to have repercussions across a huge sweeping um, array of foreign policy, security, economic um, uh, areas of interest, and and depending on when this trend is arrested for, for a, a long, long time. We've seen a number of um, good people already uh, bow out of service um, at, the, at the working level, some of the senior levels as well. And uh, I think we're really just beginning to appreciate um, 
uh, how how unfortunate that that really is. And uh, my hope is that uh, those on Capitol Hill, you know, you know, members of Congress among others, will become more vocal about this. We've seen we've seen some indicators of that. Um, uh, uh, as to the best foreign policy decision, uh, I might have to take a a buy on that just temporarily, and maybe I will I will um, interject later on in the conversation if and when something comes something comes to mind. That's not to uh, I, I don't mean to to be too dismissive. I just uh, am uh, st- still searching, still searching the brain. Yeah, perhaps we shouldn't have asked a question quite that hard because it's true. You think about it, there aren't many decisions that immediately pop to mind that the Trump administration has made that people here in town were happy about. Right. Um, if, if by best you mean least awful. That's a different. That doesn't usually. It's not usually how you define best. But yeah. Well. Well. Let's perhaps move more back to uh, an area where we actually told you we were going to talk about it, and that's that's trade policy. Um, so I think a good jumping off point might be for us to talk a little about Trump's national security strategy, which we've all focused on the security aspects of. But it's really heavy on trade, particularly in comparison to previous documents. Um, And this national security strategy really seems to have a lot of sort of vaguely protectionist ideas, um, promoting American manufacturing, dealing with the trade deficit in it, things that we just haven't seen from prior administrations. Um, So is the administration sort of trying to push us way back in time? Well, a few things. First, this document, and particularly the uh, the economic and trade aspects of it, which which indeed are quite quite prominent and more so than um, uh, past national security strategy documents. Uh, even though I, I would add that that most, if not all, uh, past national security strategies have indeed you know uh, given at least lip service to the importance of. Um, uh, strong manufacturing base, the you know the importance of uh, depending on the administration and their bent, the, the you know the importance of global alliances, global economic alliances, and, and the and the strategic value that those hold. Um, uh, nonetheless, there there is uh, a question as to how closely this document uh, actually mirrors the the uh, true Trump uh, approach, the true you know America first uh, ethos. Um, this has been a sort of refrain of uh, the trade policy making and and uh, and uh, you know policy wonk circles for the last year is who really who's really running the show? Um, which uh, what are the guiding principles for this administration, and uh, what can we put stock in? Right. Um, so I would say that actually you know compared with a lot of the pronouncements and rhetoric that we saw during the campaign and uh, over the course of 2017 this document and and the pieces devoted to uh, uh, economics and trade is is relatively uh, balanced and and and, and nuanced um, that said there's still strong undercurrents of America first um, and so uh, I think you mentioned the uh, allusions several times to uh, fair you know fair Fair and reciprocal trade, um, reciprocity is kind of the watchword these days um, in in the uh, Trump administration, particularly with respect to, to China, but but also but really across the board, um, uh, and and also the uh, emphasis on uh, domestic manufacturing and really um, relocating um, uh, the key components of um, uh, supply chains of the of most uh, of the most critical importance in the United States. 
Uh, and so how you actually square that with the system of global value chains that we have today really isn't uh, fully fleshed out in this document, nor could you flesh it out with, without, um, without acknowledging the, the uh, vast consequences it would have for um, Americans but in terms of consumer prices, in terms of uh, businesses and their, their input costs, um, in terms of the repercussions or the, uh, the uh, retaliation that would be uh, almost sure to follow from allies and adversaries alike. So it, it has a little bit of everything in here um, for both the you know, trade uh, enthusiasts as well as kind of America firsters. Yeah. In other words, like most national security strategy documents or other national pronouncements, it's vague and possibly meaningless. Yeah. And, and perhaps it doesn't truly reflect, as you say, Trump's actual rhetoric on these issues. So maybe we ought to talk a little more about, about that in particular. Um, and, you know, you mentioned sort of fair and reciprocal trade. And, and Trump, I think, in the campaign harped a lot on the idea of fair trade, not free trade, which actually we also heard from Bernie Sanders, if mm -hmm. I remember rightly. Um, but then he also harped a lot on trade imbalances mm -hmm. and the, the trade deficit. And so what does that mean for U.S. trade policy? It's a great question that uh, I dare say Trump himself hasn't really ever answered satisfactorily. Uh, I will say that, uh, by and large, when he when he alludes to fair trade, um, as best I can gather, he's he's typically he typically has in mind um, bilateral trade balances and and more specifically bilateral balances in trade in goods. So you know hard widgets, right? Manufactured goods, um, uh, vice. Uh, services, trade and services, also uh, uh, vice, uh, other uh, rules of the road that are increasingly part of modern trade agreements. All that is to say that um, most, for the most part, the kind of worldview that, that Trump seems to be bringing to trade, and indeed the, a lot of the people that he has surrounded himself with on trade, is for the most part anchored in uh, 1970s, 80s, and eight, some would say an 1880s kind of uh, uh, outlook. And, and indeed, you, you mentioned the word mercantilism, um, and that's not an unfair description of a lot of the rhetoric we've seen. Indeed, some of the some of the actual, uh, at least preliminary steps that they've taken, even though uh, it's worth pointing out that as yet here in early 2018, most of the worst um, impulses that a lot of us feared from the Trump administration have yet to really come to fruition. However, um, we might be right on the brink of a real reckoning because we can go into some of the details later if you like, but uh, a number of the sort of uh, administrative uh, studies and so on that were triggered in 2017 are, are uh, very soon coming to roost and, and will be uh, presenting Trump or USTR, as the case may be, with uh, some decisions that could really stick and really hurt a lot of our again, allies and adversaries alike. So uh, the rubber, I think, is about to really hit the road. Yeah, I, I, I worry that Trump, more than most presidents, seems ill-informed on how international trade works. And I, if you think about Trump's age, 70, and you think, as you point out, I sense that his economic outlook was cemented in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, when people were freaking out about the Japanese uh, auto industry and what, it, what you know, dumping and steel and all this stuff. And, and 
even that those protectionist instincts were wrong then uh, and they're wrong now. But Trump doesn't seem to have done any updating of his uh, thoughts about trade. And I'm and I'd love to get your take on it, it seems to me that there's a mix of people around Trump, some of whom share his bizarre fascination with with trade deficits uh, and fair trade, but a few others who might be more responsible adults, if you will. I think that's fair to say. Um, so f- those who would fall into the former camp, th- those who kind of subscribe to the same, uh, uh, you know, mercantilist uh, tinged outlook, I, th- I would I would include in that category uh, people like Wilbur Ross, Commerce Secretary. Uh, Peter Navarro, who is still, as of this moment at least, uh, a uh, in, in the White House, in um, he's, he's ensconced in a position in the White House where he's at least in earshot, even if he doesn't, you know, on on paper hold a particularly uh, uh, meaningful portfolio. Uh, I would also include, to some extent, Ambassador Robert Lighthizer, who who leads the who's the U.S. Trade Representative, uh, and therefore is the uh, by statute the lead uh, advisor to the president on trade policy and the lead negotiator. Um, uh, with uh, other countries on on trade agreements, and uh, for but you know by and large, he Lighthizer has uh, followed through on a lot of those protectionist uh, impulses, and and gone on to emphasize the same you know bilateral uh, goods trade uh, metrics. And um, I mean, we're seeing it as I say, come home to roost now, um, among other things, in the NAFTA negotiations. Um, now, uh, but Trevor, as you allude to, you know there are that to some extent is counterweighted uh, by others uh, in the in kind of upper echelons of policymaking, uh, including people like Gary Cohn, right? Uh, uh, including, I mean, there's others in the White House, at least as of now, including uh, Dina Powell. Um, you know, some, some some of these people are rumored to be leaving quite soon. Uh, we shall see. Now, I would also say that, again, as ever, the Hill is really, really important, even if it's under the radar a lot of the time, even for people, you know, us monks in, in D.C., it, everything always goes back to the Hill. Um, and I've been disappointed, I must say, in how most of the um, really thoughtful uh, supporters of a rules-based international trade system have um, fallen short in, in speaking up forcefully enough and really... Um, really intervening in a, in a way that sticks with with the president and with those uh, who surround him. We've we've seen it only in fits and starts with regard to NAFTA now, since they're really seeing that you know actual things might happen. Um, uh, but I, I fear that it might come too late, and so um, and, and you get into this uh, kind of circular firing squad uh, dynamic when everyone's kind of blaming one. Uh, you know, Congress usually blames business. Business usually blames the Hill. Uh, everyone blames us think tank nerds. But um, but uh, if from you know for my part, I've been for working for over a year now, um, trying to uh, you know guard against the worst uh, impulses of the administration and try to actually reorient them into a more. Uh, constructive approach, and it's you know we're not we're not alone, um, but it's an increasingly urgent time. Perhaps part of the problem is that the Trump administration really does just seem to be very sort of scattershot in its approach to trade. Um, and and you mentioned that um, they seem to take a very bilateral approach to these problems. And a lot of the sort of unfair trade practices that I think Trump has alluded to in his speeches and some of these more extreme advisors um, have talked about things like currency manipulation or dumping, those are mostly bilateral. But the trade agreements that they're talking about renegotiating, particularly NAFTA, are multilateral 
trade agreements. How how do we see that working out? I mean, obviously, they're going to try and apply those principles more broadly. It's a good question. There's on NAFTA in particular, um, some of these, uh, you know, the, the the predilection for bilateral. Uh, negotiation has has led many, including uh, Trump himself, actually, to speculate that perhaps uh, the end game, or at least one of the possible scenarios, uh, is that NAFTA will be sort of bifurcated into two bilateral deals. I tend to think that's uh, almost ma- many of the outcomes one can foresee here in the next six six months or so uh, are just riddled with problems. But that that's certainly one of them. Um, but nonetheless, I think that that is at least symptomatic or, or illustrative of of Trump's, um, you know, real uh, emphasis uh, or uh, taste for bilateral deal making. Um, I would also just add that um, for all the for all the uh, um, bluster about uh, preferences for bilateral deals, not one country has taken up this administration on actually engaging. Um, it's made its most sort of uh, uh, muscular or. or uh, uh, you know, it's going to lead its charm offensive here um, uh, in its outreach to Japan. And the Japanese have said, quite matter-of-factly, no. And um, nonetheless, the Trump administration is going to persist, I think, for some time. Uh, but these other countries, one, I think, see that uh, in in the example of NAFTA, uh, among other things, that this administration has yet to really it, its approach um, to negotiations and, and what it's really prioritizing is yet to be really seen, and so they're reluctant to engage in that regard. And also, they typically uh, are are drawn to larger um, uh, 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 groups. You know, uh, uh, plurilateral is the the term of art for for trade uh, wonks, but plurilateral or or, or multilateral deals that. Uh, have a broader network of benefits that are really, you know, uh, that serve as a force multiplier for the economic benefits, as well as, as I said before, the um, the the advantages that come with uh, uh, harmonizing or or uh, at least aligning uh, the uh, regulatory standards that pertain to trade and, and and related areas that we see now in modern trade agreements. So. The TPP was probably the most famous example, at least in recent memory, of of, of that uh, trend. Um, and 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 I should say that in on that front in particular, the eleven remaining signatories of TPP are very you know uh, uh, deliberately pressing on with that to try to um, uh, finalize it in uh, in perhaps slightly recalibrated form. Um, so that's something that I, I still think we could see uh, in 2018. I'm interested in your take on TPP in particular in a couple of ways. One, how big a a loss for for U.S. trade is pulling out going to be? And sort of part two is uh, the Trump administration is never going to reconsider joining. But it didn't seem likely that a Clinton administration would have been able to make it happen either, given the optics that Hillary ran into against Bernie Sanders in the campaign. And so... I'm sort of wondering, and maybe this is a question I'm foreshadowing too soon, but what, what the future of, of free trade in the U.S. does not look rosy at the moment. It really is um, a crossroads, I think, uh, in terms of what our cast of policymakers, both on the Hill and the administration, uh, think and, and believe in terms of the value of trade, as well as what the uh, American public uh, perceives. There's been a lot of really interesting uh, public opinion work done in the last, uh, particularly in the last year or so, showing a real disconnect between the 
parties and their traditional constituencies. Um, there's sort of a realignment underway between, you know, the, the uh, Democratic and Republican, uh, uh, you know, voting publics. And one wonders whether this is a temporary uh, uh, symptom of the rise of Trump, right? Um, or perhaps it's something that will last longer, in which case um, the the kind of constituency and support for um, really economic engagement with the wider world is quite tenuous. And that means that we have uh, our work cut out for us. But um, uh, so that's that's a, a low, or that's a, certainly a strong U.S. dynamic, uh, or at least an open question. Uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, there are similar currents running throughout the rest of the world um, in terms of disaffection with the global economic elite and the you know the the uh, uh, the unsustainability you know some would say of um, uh, global interdependence um, and so that points up another important um, aspect of policy making or or public policy, both in the U.S. and around the world, which is how we, this, this is really, I think, one of the most important and underappreciated parts of um, of trade and economic policy these days, which is the uh, the approach that governments at the local, uh, regional, national levels, as well as the private sector, take to uh, coping with change, economic change, whether it's um, uh, anticipating that change by modernizing vocational training and you know those, those sorts of educational programs, or uh, on the on the tail end of these disruptions, um, helping helping workers who have lost jobs or what have you um, uh, pick up new skills. In some cases, relocate. Um, these these are long running uh, 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 challenges of public policy, um, and they're only getting more complex and nettlesome as as the global economy becomes more complex. Um, but as I say, it's something that really is, uh, it, it is, it is really what most crystallizes the, the connection between, uh, globalization for all its, you know, all that loaded term entails and the real, the here and now and, and the nitty gritty of how life plays out on a local level. Um, and so that's, that's something that really was brought to the fore by all of the fervor around Trump and, and, and Sanders for that matter. And yet some of those core issues really have gone unaddressed or unheeded in, in any kind of thoughtful way. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, um, one of the the furies of even domestic policy with the Trump administration has actually been quite good as they have expressed an interest in some of these apprenticeship style or vocational training programs that would actually help with some of the dislocations caused by globalization. But they don't really seem to be sort of playing it out publicly and they haven't taken massive steps in that direction, even though it's probably quite a popular policy. But this is a, a broader trend, as you say, across a lot of different countries. Um, and it's not not just Trump and it's not just Bernie Sanders. You know, we saw Brexit, which many elites in the UK portrayed as, you know, well, this is pro-free trade and we'll have a more global trading system. But actually, if you look at polls of the voters, voters typically thought of it as, as anti-trade, anti-migration when they voted for Brexit. And in a lot of other countries, too, we're seeing this really negative side effects of globalization and governments not necessarily dealing with them in a, in a good way. And so I guess the, the big question, um, one that's probably too big to really answer here, is what does this mean for the future of trade? Are we going to see a decline in free trade and globalization as countries start to shut their doors? Or are we looking at perhaps public sentiment that's opposed to globalization, but a continuation of that trend nonetheless? 
Well, uh, <clears throat> I'll weigh in first and say, I think we're going to see perhaps a, a little bit of all of the above. In other words, I think it's, I, I do not think we are going to see a, a full-scale uh, 180 from the trends of the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. I, I do. What I do think is an open question is what form, uh, again, I'll just say globalization for lack of a, a more nuanced term for now, what form it will take. I, I think that, and we see it, we see it playing out again every day in the papers. Countries that, especially in the kind of in the absence of the U.S., you know, continuing its leadership position on on trade, we see other countries moving quite aggressively and quickly, trying to uh, continue uh, forging their own agreements or strike up new ones. So whether it's the TPP-11, whether it's the EU-Japan deal, whether it's China uh, leading the the so-called RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is often portrayed as sort of a uh, counterweight to TPP, even though many countries participate in both. Um, uh, anyhow, po point is that uh, these these kinds of arrangements continue to uh, proceed, and I think we'll continue to see these agreements uh, uh, proliferate. The question is, what you know? First of all, you know, in terms of the hard dollars and cents. Uh, who really benefits in terms of the uh, the economic shakeouts, um, and that could be a kind of a uh, you know shrink, shrinking pie for everyone to see. Is we we just saw an interesting report from uh, the um, the WTO saying that uh, global economic growth might have um, sorry the World Bank saying that global economic growth might have uh, just uh, plateaued or st starting to level off. Um, but also beyond that, again, what are the the kind of regulatory standards? What are the rules of the road? As, as this thing goes, uh, by which uh, countries will 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 uh, have to to abide um, that come down through these kinds of agreements, and that has huge repercussions or, or implications for things like privacy, for for health, the environment, um, and and there is, I think, a real difference in. Uh, how those things will shake out, and uh, whether the U.S. is more or, or less active, um, uh, and the rest of the world is not going to wait for us to to um, sort ourselves out. They're they're getting on with it, and um, uh, we need to be at the table. Yeah, I think that's an an excellent summary of a difficult question. I my own sense is that you know these like many things, the support for free trade across the world goes up and down in waves. You know, you have waves of protectionism, which don't work for anyone. And as everyone grabs their, you know, shrinking piece of the pie, they start to wonder, wait a minute, maybe that wasn't a good idea after all. And so you're, you're driven. The, the major powers of the world need global trade. They can't, they can't avoid it forever, even if their publics are are upset about it. But I think that upset is really important not to lose focus of and that that's been so so clear. And I'm, I'm reminded of, of Barber's, you know, Jihad versus McWorld uh, writing where, you, you know, there are a lot of responses to globalization around the world. It's not the response is not evenly distributed either across nations uh, or within nations. And I think that's something that the U.S. has finally really uh, waked up to is that it's one thing for, say, countries in the Middle East not to want to play by the rules of the road that the West laid out. Uh, but now we're finding out that uh, even many people in our own country don't want to live by those rules if it means they get screwed over um, despite growth in the economy. And so, I mean, I'm from Michigan, so I, I remember the 80s pretty well, actually. Mm -hmm. And boy, oh boy, uh, you know, the fact that at every auto supplier, there are two parking lots, one for domestic cars and one about a half a mile away for foreign-made automobiles, uh, tells you all you need to know about the jihadist impulse <laughs> here in America. So we have to take that very seriously because it will shape domestic politics and the ability of presidents to make trade deals.
Well, uh, we could, I think, discuss this all day, uh, but I'm afraid we're basically out of time. So um, hopefully we will continue this discussion in the future. Thanks, Nate, for joining us today. Um, and thanks to everyone at home for listening. Uh, if you liked our discussion on trade today, you should absolutely check out an upcoming event at Cato on January 24th, where Douglas Irwin will discuss his new book, Clashing Over Commerce, A History of U.S. Trade Policy. Seems like it might be relevant today. Um, and next time on Power Problems, we'll have a special podcast and a conference doubleheader. You can hear Trevor on our next podcast as he chats with a couple of great guests, Kath Hicks from CSIS and Hal Brands from Johns Hopkins Society. And they'll be talking about Trump's foreign policy after one year in office. Those two guests are also part of an all-star lineup of guests for our big conference on January 30th, the Trump Doctrine at One Year. We have a, a bunch of other panelists, including Susan Glasser of Politico, Jim Goldgar of American University, Barbara Slavin of the Atlantic Council, Tamara Kaufman-Witties of Brookings, Ryan Evans of War on the Rocks, Charlie Savage of the New York Times, and a bunch more. So please do join us on January 30th at Cato. You can register online at www.cato.org forward slash events. As always, thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld. And if you like the episode, say something nice about us on iTunes or Google Play.